That song that Janet was just playing, Be Still My Soul. It's probably one of my favorite hymns. And uh, If you're ever going through a difficult time where you feel like you've got a storm happening in your heart, there's so many stresses and anxieties and worries going on, it's a great hymn to, that basically through singing you preach to yourself. And you're preaching to yourself, look to God and calm down. He's in control and he's working all for your good. It's just a, a great hymn. Uh, we're going to continue now uh, our verse-by-verse study of the book of Romans. Uh, our plan has been to do Romans 1 and 2 uh, during the fall and winter into the spring. And, and then we will leave there and go back to Genesis, which we did last summer. And we stopped after Genesis 11. We're going to pick up next week in Genesis 12 and do a study of the life of Abraham throughout the spring and summer. And then we will come back to Romans 3 and 4 uh, in the fall. And uh, that's not by accident. There is a lot of connecting points between Romans and Genesis. Uh, We've just been talking about covenants and circumcision and all of those kinds of things. We're going to see a lot of that in Genesis, just as we've been seeing it in Romans. And we're going to be studying the life of Abraham in Genesis just before we come to Romans 3 and 4 where Paul preaches the gospel and then uses as his first Old Testament evidence, his first Old Testament illustration that his gospel is right. Who does he turn to in Romans 4? He turns to Abraham. And so this all goes together. And I hope you will see the, uh, the providence of God at work uh, in these Sermons. So this will be our, our final message on Romans 2. Let me begin reading that last paragraph in verse 25. Romans 2, verse 25. Read it with me. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. This praise is not from man, but from God. If you abandon Israel, God will never forgive you. Those were the words that former President Bill Clinton said that his ailing pastor spoke to him. As he was near death. President Clinton said his pastor told him, It is God's will that Israel, the biblical home of the people of Israel, continue forever and ever. Among Christians in America, there is a popular notion that there are, in fact, two peoples of God. There is the church, bought by the blood of Christ. And there is the nation of Israel. We Gentiles must become God's people by repentance and faith in Christ as our Messiah and Lord. But according to the view of many, 
The Jews are God's people simply because of who they are. They are a nation created by God. It was they who received his commandments at Mount Sinai. It was they who received this rite of circumcision and God declared them to be his people. I wonder what you think about that. Are there two distinct peoples of God? The message that Paul is teaching here in Romans 2, the message that had him beaten and stoned and chased out of towns by angry Jews was this message that Jews just like Gentiles, are born sinners under the wrath of God. And apart from faith in Jesus Christ, they are not a part of the people of God. For there is only one people of God. We've taken a detour from Romans 2 over the last three weeks, and it was a purposeful, meaningful detour. Over the last three weeks, we have been learning about circumcision, physical circumcision, and particularly this circumcision of the heart, being born again. Also, that this last paragraph in Romans 2 would make sense to you. I have been trying to prepare you for this paragraph so that what at first seems difficult should now be, I hope, easy to understand. Paul is arguing in this paragraph the same thing he's been arguing throughout the whole chapter 2 of Romans. Namely, that the people of God, the true people of God, are those who do what God says. Let me say that again. The true people of God are those who do what God says. Remember in Romans 1, Paul gave an indictment of all humanity, declaring that all of us, no matter our race, social class, ethnicity, all of us are by nature under the righteous, the righteous wrath of God because of our wickedness. And when he gets to Romans 2, he begins to address those who think that they might be the exception. They think they have some reason why they are not. Everybody else might be, by nature, under the wrath of God, but not me. And in particular, he's addressing his fellow kinsmen, the Jews, who were prone to self-righteous attitudes, who looked scornfully on those pagan Gentiles. What does Paul say in the very first verse of this chapter? Do you remember? What does the very first verse say? Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. In other words, it's not as if the Jews had have somehow been all holy and righteous and when compared with the Gentiles. When we read our Old Testament, what do we see but the Jews throughout their history being plagued by pagan idolatry, being plagued by murder and sexual immorality? So that later in this chapter, Paul says, God's name was blasphemed because of you? In verses 6 through 11, 
Paul makes clear that God will render to each person according to his works. Those who have lived in disobedience will receive wrath. Those who have lived in obedience will receive eternal life. And who are those people who will be blessed by God on the last day? Verse 10, it is those described as doing good. The people of God are those who do what he says. Verses 17 through 24, Paul can hear his Jewish kinsmen saying, but we have the law. We're special. God gave us the Ten Commandments. And Paul's answer is that that is all well and good. But what really matters is not having the law, but actually doing the law. Look at verse 23. Verse 23. You who boast in the law, that is, they boasted in having the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. And now in verses 25 through 29, Paul hears his Jewish kinsmen saying, but we are the circumcised. We are the true people of God. We are those marked by this act of circumcision in our flesh. Doesn't this prove we are God's people? And Paul's answer yet again is that it is those who actually do what God says that are God's people. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, these people who actually do what God says are those who have been circumcised in heart. Physical circumcision, this act of cutting off the flesh, was always intended to be a picture of what really mattered. Spiritual circumcision. Us, by the grace of God, putting away our flesh, our old man, the killing of who he used to be, a radical 180 turn, becoming something new. The new birth. The Holy Spirit, through the gospel, by order of Jesus from his throne, comes into people's lives as he wills and changes them, circumcises their hearts, causes them to change so that now these former rebels suddenly desire to submit to God and do His will. They trust God. They love God. The old self has died. A new God-centered self has begun to emerge. These are the people who do what God says. These are the circumcised in heart, and they have a name. Christian. Are you among this people? The church is the one and only people of God. Some in the church are ethnic Jews. Praise the Lord. So we'll see later in Romans, Paul will say, was God unfaithful to his promise? No, God did save Jews. I'm one, Paul says. And he even talks about his own grief for his fellow kinsmen who are rejecting Christ. But the people of God is not just Jews. It is all Jew, Gentile, all people from tongue, tribe, nation who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The true children of Abraham are those who have Abraham's faith, not his blood. 
national Israel's physical circumcision always stood as a warning to them, a physical, visible, daily reminder that if they were not circumcised in heart, if they did not trust God, they would be cut off from God. And the Old Testament kingdom of Israel did not trust God. There was always a remnant. But generally, they lived in idolatry, they lived in immorality, climaxing in the murder of God's Son. And just as God promised through their circumcision, God cut off from Himself Old Testament Israel. They were ravaged by the Romans in 70 A.D., Today, where God once dwelt among them in the Holy of Holies on the temple, in the temple on the Temple Mount, now stands the Dome of the Rock, a Muslim mosque. How much clearer could God make it that His old covenant with Israel is obsolete? God's people today and in all history are those who do what He says. National Israel is not the people of God. As God told them in Hosea 1.9, call his name not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. The true Jew, the true child of God and descendant of Abraham is the one who by grace has been brought to live a life of faithful obedience. Folks, I think you're beginning to feel that this is controversial in our day. It was very controversial in Paul's day, and he bore the marks of this teaching on his back. And it's controversial in our day, so let me prove it to you again because it is important. Look with me at verse 25. Verse 25. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, old covenant Jew, you're circumcised. And that circumcision has value. It it identifies you as one of those looking to receive the promises that God made to Abraham. Your circumcision has value because it reminds you of the necessity of being circumcised in heart, putting away your flesh, being obedient to God. But if you, dear old circumcised Jew, dear circumcised Jew, if you live in disobedience, if you live breaking the laws of God, your circumcision means nothing. What matters most is a circumcised heart showing itself in a life of obedient faith. Not not perfect obedience, but a real striving to follow God. Dear Jew, Paul says in verse 25, if you don't have spiritual circumcision, you are as cut off from God as the most uncircumcised pagan in the world. For it is keeping the law that matters. Look at verse 26. Very clear, verse 26. So if a man who is uncircumcised, this pagan Gentile, keeps the precepts of the law, 
will not his circumcision be regard, uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Did you hear that? In God's sight, if a person has never been physically circumcised but is keeping his word, that is regarded as the circumcision that counts and matters. This was Paul defending his one of his great messages that he proclaimed, namely that salvation is open to the Gentiles, not just the Jews. How could uncircumcised pagan Gentiles be brought as into the children of Abraham? How does that possibly make sense? Paul says, not through physical circumcision, but by being changed by the Spirit of God, the circumcision of the heart. By dying to their flesh, being made new. Verse 27. Verse 27. This was so offensive in Paul's day and even in ours. Then he who is physically uncircumcised, pagan Gentile, but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code. That's, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy and circumcision, but break the law. Do you see how that would have stung the Jews in Paul's day? So many of them were so used to looking down on the Gentiles, the, the Gentile pigs, they called them, the Gentile dogs. They were the Jews. They were God's people. In their mind, on the last day, the Jews would stand in judgment over the Gentiles. And Paul says, no. If there is an uncircumcised Gentile who by grace has been brought to trust God enough to do what he says, and you are a Jew who is circumcised, but you don't keep the law, your heart's never been changed. That Gentile will stand in judgment over you. For if that Gentile who did not have the scriptures or the physical symbol of circumcision was willing to submit to God in faith and obedience, how much more evil is the disobedience of the Jews who had all those things but refused to heed them? Now comes the clincher. Verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You see the truth stated there as clearly as it can be stated? The true Jew, the true circumcision is the one who is inwardly, spiritually a Jew, having received an inward spiritual circumcision. From Adam to the last saint saved by Jesus before Jesus returns, all God's people will have this in common, whether they were saved as ethnic Jews, whether they were saved as ethnic Gentiles, if they are gods, they were circumcised in heart. 
They were given faith as a gift. And by faith, they became children of Abraham. By faith, they entered into the glorious promises that God made to Abraham. As Paul says in Galatians 3, 7, Know then, know that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Note two things in verse 29. Note two points. Notice that Paul says first that that circumcision of the heart is by the Spirit, not by the letter. God's people are those who have the law written on their hearts by the Spirit of God in such a way that they now naturally live in obedience to Him, desire obedience to Him, trust Him and love Him. There have always been those who did not have this this spirit reality in their hearts, who tried to be God's people by keeping the letter of the law, even though it ran contrary to their natural desires and was in fact a charade disguising their real selves. Think of the Pharisees. Think of how the Pharisees kept the letter of the law, though it was not in their hearts. Externally, they were spick and span. They were righteous in their words. They were righteous in their behavior. But inwardly, they were as lustful and murderous and idolatrous and selfish as the worst pagan. How did Jesus describe them? Whitewashed tombs. All beautiful on the outside, but death on the inside. They were externally circumcised, but they were not internally circumcised. They were circumcised according to the letter of the law, but not by the Spirit of God who puts the law into our hearts in such a way that it is our delight to obey. So that the yoke of the law is a yoke that is easy, a burden that is light. Pharisees were outwardly obedient to the law, but they were not inwardly obedient. They were hypocrites. They were false professors. They were pretenders. They deceived others. Many of them had deceived themselves. And I can't help but wonder if there are any like that among us this morning. You've never been made new. But you go to church and you try to live decently. You can even talk some of the Christian lingo. You just try and do what you think God requires in the law. You try and be a decent human being and assume that that's enough and it makes you right with God. Friends, it is those who do what God says from the heart, from a new heart, out of love for Him and trust in Him that are His. Apart from real faith, your outward acts of obedience are as disgusting in his sight as disobedience. Perhaps even more disgusting because they are false. Second, notice that at the end of verse 29, Paul says his praise, speaking of the person who's been circumcised of heart, his praise is not from man but from God. In other words, Paul helps us here. 
God lovingly through Paul helps us here to, to say here's one way to distinguish whether someone is spiritually, un, spiritually circumcised or not. Because two people can do the same good thing and one be pleasant in God's sight and one be putrid. Two people in this room might have put money in the offering plate while ago and one was a fragrant aroma to God and the other was disgusting to him. It's all about the heart and what motivated the act. Those who are uncircumcised of heart, Paul says, often do what they do for the praise of man, whereas those who have been changed in heart do what they do for the praise of God. Think about the Pharisees. Great example. Trusting in their outward keeping of the law, and as they lived obediently, they did so motivated by the praise of men. Jesus described them as keeping the law publicly so that they could receive the praise of men. When they gave to the needy, they sounded a trumpet before them so that all could see what they were doing. When they prayed, they would stand in the synagogues and on the street corners so that everyone could see them praying. And Jesus said, surely, truly, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward, right? What they were after, they got. They were pursuing the favor of men, and they got the favor of men. When they were fasting, they would disfigure their faces so that everybody would know that they're fasting and say, mm, that's a holy man. But Jesus said that we are to be seeking a much greater reward than the favor of men. True Christians obey God for the praise of God. We want him to take pleasure in us. We want God to say over us, well done, my good and faithful servant. As Paul told servants in Ephesians 6, 6, to serve their masters, not by the way of eye service, not as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. These are the true people of God. Those who have been changed by the Holy Spirit so that they trust God and show it by living lives of faithful, not perfect, but faithful obedience to him. And it's possible only because of the death of Christ. Without the cross, God would not be just to circumcise anyone's heart, to make anyone new, to bless anyone with this gift of salvation. There are several implications. I'm going to mention three. Three implications of this teaching. Number one, we should not view modern-day national Israel as the people of God. There are perhaps other reasons why the United States should partner with Israel, should help protect Israel, should support Israel. But the Scripture does not allow us to say that we should support modern Israel because they are the people of God. The Bible clearly says that modern Israel is not the people of God. The national Israel, by their unbelief, by their disobedience, proved themselves not to be the people of God. When God constituted them as a nation at Mount Sinai, His covenant with them was very clear. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. 
Did you hear the condition of the covenant? If you will indeed obey my voice. God says, if you do what I say, you will be my treasured people. National Israel in the past and the present have lived in rank disobedience to God, rejecting his commands, rejecting his son. Jesus was very clear about what was happening when he came. In Matthew 21, he looks at the Jewish leaders, the chief priests and the elders. He looks them in the eye and he says, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. People of God is the church of God from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So if you're ever at home and you're watching the 700 Club with Pat Robertson or watching John Hagee or some of these other TV preachers and they begin to quote Genesis 12, 3 where God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will dishonor those who dishonor you, I will curse. And they say that national Israel is Abraham's children. And if America wants to be blessed, we need to bless national Israel. That's not what the scriptures are saying. The overwhelming teaching of the New Testament is that it is not national Israel who is the true children of Abraham. It is the church, the children of Abraham through faith. And if America wants to be blessed, she should seek to protect God's church. She should seek to bless God's church. She should seek to care for God's church. Much of the book of Revelation is about world powers using their strength to hurt God's church and how God brings judgment and wrath upon them because they hurt his precious people. It is of the church that God says, if you bless her, I will bless you. If you curse her, I will curse you. Didn't he promise to bless even those who gave a cup of cold water to his disciples? Indeed, wasn't it of his people, his children, that Jesus said that, that if we caused even one of them to stumble, it would be better for us to have a millstone tied around our neck and be thrown into the sea because that's how much God loves his people. He will not see them stumble by you and that sin go unpunished. The church is the bride of God's Son. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the temple in which he dwells. God poured out his wrath on his beloved son for the sake of his church. And friends, if God loves his people that much, if God is for us, who can be against us? And so let us rejoice in God's great love for us. Let us be humbled that we have been brought to become a member of the people of God. And let us love the church universal, Christians in Azerbaijan. Did I say it right, Brad? And the local church. Right? Implication number two, the church is to be made up of spiritually circumcised people. God's people are the church and God's people are the spiritually circumcised. No one is a part of God's covenant people, the church, unless God has brought them into his family by this regenerating work. 
And what is the evidence of someone being circumcised in heart? A life of faith and repentance. Which means that we should consider no one to be a part of God's people, the church, who are not living in repentance and faith. This is another indication of the biblical teaching of regenerate church membership. That local churches are to be made up of real Christians. Not people who make decisions and put their names on a roll, but people who are actually living with circumcised hearts, trusting Christ, obeying Christ. When we allow people to live in open rebellion against King Jesus, and yet we say they can still remain a part of our church, we're denying a fundamental truth that God's people are those who by grace do what He says. We could talk more about that, but the, the implication here is we have evidence for both believers' baptism, not baptizing infants, and church discipline, protecting the purity of the church. But let me bring us to the last implication. It's an important one. It's the most important one. If our lives are not characterized by an obedient faith, we should cry out to God for salvation. This is the implication I have been bringing out at the end of every message now for four weeks. It is so important that we look to ourselves and see, have I been born again? Have I been circumcised in heart? As Paul told the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Have you been circumcised in heart? Are you resting in Christ? Are you seeking to obey Him? Are you motivated by a desire to please God rather than a desire to please men? Some of you have been sitting in this very sanctuary week after week after week hearing the necessity of being changed by the Spirit of God. What a tragedy to sit and hear all this and not be changed. To be outside of all the glorious promises I've been opening up to you. And boy, in the next four weeks, Genesis 12, I'm going to be opening up some grand promises to you. You don't want to be outside those promises. Are you a part of God's people? I wish I could call each of you out by name and say, so and so. Are you born again? Young people, are you hearing what the Bible says? Has the truth that I've been teaching been registering with you? Have you come to a place where your soul says, I want to be a Christian. I want to serve God. I believe that Jesus is worthy of my trust and I want to please Him. Is that what has been happening in your heart over these weeks? Or, or is the Word of God just bouncing off your hard heart like pebbles off a road? What's happening in here? Only you and the Lord can truly know what's going on there. Are you living for Facebook? Are you living for your social life? Are you living for television? Or has God been working in you in such a way that you have found that there is something better and grander to live for? 
Have you begun to see, young people, old people, all of us, that there is a big God who made us, who rules over us, who loves us? Have you discovered that you are a sinner against Him, a rebel deserving of hell? Have you seen your need of a new heart? Have you seen why Jesus came to die on the cross to take the punishment we deserve so that we could be forgiven? You must turn to him. You must rest in him. Parents, each week after we have these sermons, are you, are you talking about them with your children? Is your heart burdened? Is your heart longing desperately to see your children changed by the Spirit of God? Are your children learning from you what is really important? These Sunday services, morning, evening, are a moment in which God addresses us together as a church. But it's also moments in which He addresses us as families. And we shouldn't walk out the sanctuary doors after as a family being addressed by God and say, well, we've been addressed, let's move on. There ought to be time as a family talking about these things. What was God telling us this morning? What was he calling us to believe? Kids, what, what was he calling us to obey this morning? Week after week, I've been preaching on spiritual, spiritual circumcision. And ultimately, the message has been the same message. The message that Jesus gave to Nicodemus. You must be born again. You must be changed in heart. Are there not some here who are fearful that they do not have this new heart and are on your way to hell? Are there not some here who would cry out in their souls, Lord, do this work in me. I want to believe. I want to live a life of faith and repentance, but I, I can't make it happen. Lord, make it happen. I pray that some in here even now might see Jesus as a Savior for sinners and run to Him. When someone believes on Christ, when they show it by that first act of obedience, baptism, we welcome them into the family of God, the true people of God. And there are some in here I would love to welcome into the people of God. Won't you turn to Christ? Won't you trust Him? Would you seek to obey Him?